The Heather McCoy Show. And welcome back to The Heather McCoy Show. Join me from the other side of the Cleveland National Forest is our guest, Robert Larson. He comes to us every week. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Robert. Uh, it's always my pleasure, Heather. So there's a homeless camp cleanup in Lake Elsinore, and um, I don't know. In my mind, Lake Elsinore is like the Santa Monica of the Inland Empire, um, the home of the homeless, as Harry Shearer would say. Is it, What about this latest homeless cleanup camp? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right about that. It is <laughs> kind of the homeless capital of uh, the Inland Empire, as Santa Monica is in uh, LA, LA County. County. Yeah, but the the thing that's different is is um, Santa Monica is very urban. You know, it's a big city, and whereas Lake Elsinore, even though it's, it's a city of a decent size, it it's kind of rural. There's a lot of open land out there, and so in a certain sense, it's it's better for homeless people and that they can create these full-on camps. I don't think there's a lot of open land in, in Santa Monica where people can sort of just set up makeshift shelters. In Santa Monica, it's more like they're sleeping on the sidewalks and alleys and maybe parks, right? Yeah. So this is like um, this place that's near Lakeland Village, which is a community sort of on the shore of Lake Elsinore. Uh, there's a place uh, that they call um, the Olive Grove, it's actually an abandoned olive grove. I guess this these olives were grown for probably commercial purposes at one point, but it kind of been abandoned. I guess maybe they're not producing anymore or whatever. And uh, so there's a lot of shade there, and it seemed to, I guess, to people homeless in the area that, well, it's a good place. There's shade here. We can be hidden. We can set up little shelters. And also a lot of people just were dumping trash in that area, which is kind of bad if if you're living there as a homeless person, but kind of like, well, sometimes in trash, there's things that are useful to you as a homeless person. Oh, definitely. So they, they were taking a lot of this debris and sort of building shacks and things. And, but I saw one picture in the paper, and it was kind of, it's pretty gnarly looking. It's just a lot, a lot of trash. And so I think the authorities got involved and wanted to break up and clean up this homeless camp because um, they felt it was a safety and health hazard. And actually, a story that I think you and I talked about a, a while back is somebody was found dead in that area, and they investigated and figured out who had killed this person. And so it just a lot of crime like that, and people in the area were a little worried, and just there was a lot of just human waste and things like that that smelled bad. And so you can understand the desire to clean it up. However, in a lot of past efforts in breaking up homeless camps, it's kind of bad. The people are just thrown out and... Well, where do they go from here? And, and that's really tragic. And it does seem that in the Elsinore, they, they tried to do this in the the right way and got a lot of uh, um, authorities involved, uh, specialists of uh, social workers and healthcare professionals to kind of get these people set up in some kind of housing. Yeah. And to also get them into uh, healthcare, uh, physical healthcare and mental healthcare, which we all know that mental health is a big issue with homeless people. So uh, that, that's a good thing. I hope it's not just a Band-Aid where they're going to get a one-time treatment and then that's it. I hope it's like they're going to be put into regular care and they can live more uh, uh, lives that are not so harsh. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that always confuses me about like Elsinore, and I've been there a lot, especially like maybe 10 years ago, I'd go there almost maybe 
maybe four or five times a year is I don't understand why in like Elsinore there's so much open space, but people love to just dump trash out there. That's what your front curb is for. Not no, it's just <laughs> you know I, I I don't know I don't know if it's some cultural thing and people uh, um, that are maybe used to living in sort of rural areas where you do have kind of places i think some in some rural areas they do have like a dump that's not like an official city dump but it's a pit and people just dump trash there and and it's sort of burned or whatever at some point i don't know if that the people are in situations coming from places that are like that or if it's people immigrants maybe from other countries that don't have regular uh, sanitation systems like we have and are just figure that's how you do it so yeah I, I it's puzzling to me too and you you just think that well we do have a regular sanitation system and pickup system here in elsinore why aren't you using it uh yeah it's a, that's an interesting question now this particular homeless camp i guess they said some people have been living there for uh 15 years oh wow yeah and that there were um uh there were 20 to 30 residents who had been there were living there at the time when they cleaned it up and uh it's a, actually a 70-acre uh, private property, which is a pretty big chunk of land. And I guess the, the owner is like sort of an absent landlord, and they couldn't even get in touch with him. And so they had to um, come in with uh, resolutions from the city government to just say, okay, we have the right to just come in here, even though it's private property, and take care of this. And so they did, and that's what happened. And I said, like, hopefully these homeless people are in a better place and maybe are not homeless now. Um yeah, I said they, they found a body there in 2012, one of the things that led to the desire to clean it up. I, I hope it's a good ending. Yeah, I hope so, too. And just on a related note about trash and weird habits, I had a neighbor that in Westminster who had uh, a dad, and he was a, he was a grown man. He had a, it was, his dad was in the 60s, and he lived in Garden Grove. And when things would break, like major appliances, he would bury them in the backyard. So, I mean... <laughs> There's some weird things. That... Major appliance in the backyard. Yeah, it was like a little grave site for all of the major appliances. And then we were, he, his son was actually worried that when he died, he would bury himself in his little Ford Ranger. So, um... That's an interesting story, Heather. You should write that up and <laughs> present it to the uh, OC Weekly or something. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, we always were wondering if, like, you know, like plane navigation would be thrown off in that area when they flew over his house in Garden Grove because he had so much metal in the ground. <laughs> um, but anyways, a, a Marietta man uh, killed his wife, who was a police officer. Uh, he took, he shot her first, and he takes his, her body to a storage locker in Marina Valley. And then the story gets really interesting. Yeah, um, this story <laughs> falls under two categories. The sort of ongoing murder and mayhem in Marietta that we've done a few times, which even though it's overall considered a low-crime city, uh, they just has these kind of weird high-profile murder and mayhem cases uh, more often than you'd think. So it falls under that category. also falls under the dumb crime category that we all kind of find amusing. But, um, yeah, um, apparently uh, this man, I don't think they list his occupation, but his wife was a police officer uh, in uh, a local community. So he decided to uh, murder her. I guess they're now piecing it together and saying there was kind of an on ongoing situation of, uh, of spousal abuse. But um, 
I always think, you know, if you're married to a police officer, it's probably not the person you, you want to murder because uh, police go that extra mile to solve crimes when it involves one of their own being the victim of that crime. So, you know, anyway, that, that was a little bit uh, um, not well thought out on his part. But, yeah, so he, he shoots her, kills her takes her body to a uh, storage locker in, in Moreno Valley and then um, sets his house on fire in an attempt to cover up the crime. So that um, he sets the house on fire, grabs his little daughter, comes out front, calls 911 and says, my house is on fire. And then he's saying, I think to the 911 dispatcher and to neighbors, oh, I think my wife's in there. And you're like, that's so absurd. You think your wife's in there? You wouldn't just be like completely frantic and trying to run in the house and, and save her? You're just going to say, oh, well, I guess it's too late. Um, so that seemed a little suspicious. When the authorities came and investigated, They and they put out the fire, and they were like, okay, there's no body in here. <laughs> you, know, you know what? An idiot criminal is sort of like, you know, Unless it's something like a nuclear blast, there's going to at least be the skeleton there, and with DNA and everything, they're going to figure out <laughs> that, you know, who it is, and they're going to figure, and they also be able to figure out if she was previously shot, unless the body was just completely into ashes. So, really, you know, not too bright on on his part, and he, at, when the authorities started questioning him and realized it didn't add up, he sort of quickly confessed. So. I think he realizes he realized that they sort of had him on this but you when know, one of the neighbors was commenting that like wow looking back it's kind of weird i didn't know that he but a couple of days ago when the she was killed he was doing this weird thing where he was moving all the cars in his driveway and then now looking back it looks like okay he was taking the one car that he could put the body in the back and so she's got this sort of creepy feeling about it and the little girl the daughter of the couple um, the husband and the wife he killed, um, the, their daughter has been sent to a relative. And I imagine he's going to um, be in prison for a very long time, if, if not even getting the death penalty. Yeah, definitely. The other funny thing, too, is if, like, let's say fire investigators go, okay, where's the body if the wife is in the house? The, the fire investigators will also figure out that, oh, wait, this is an act of arson. So... I, it's just a really dumb, thought-out crime. Yeah, I mean, it, well, no, he has been charged with arson, yeah. So yeah, well, so, yeah, he would... Yeah, that and, would have been a, another red flag, even if the body was in there. Yeah, and, and, uh, and murder. So, uh, yeah, just... Uh, you know, you hear about people doing other things to dispose of the bodies that, like... <laughs> I guess he didn't even read uh, these true crime stories. <laughs> he just, uh, I don't know, probably crime of passion. If it was an ongoing thing of abuse, he probably just... Uh, didn't wasn't thinking clearly at all yeah and, definitely at yeah. least if he went to walmart and got bleach or whatever <laughs> that, that that body still has not been found right yeah that crime as far as i know that body is still not been found yeah so um a couple of uci UC, i was gonna say uci a couple of uc riverside students got a grant to do research on anti-pollution technology the solution they came up with was a special type of roof tiles that takes a certain kind of toxic thing out of the air um that's an exciting breakthrough that comes out of the inland empire yeah i think so if it and if it pans out i mean this is be a great thing and i mean i don't think it's like some radical new concept it was just like that people had kind of thought this was something that 
could be done or has been done, but they just came up with a sort of different technique and it's just creating these roof tiles that uh, supposedly uh, removes up to 97% of pollution, pollution causing nitrogen dioxides. And that, you know, if it pans out and this really works, that that's great. I mean, that uh, if we could start putting these on all our rooftops and take a lot of pollution out of the atmosphere, and as long as it wouldn't mean that we couldn't also have uh, solar panels on our roofs as well. And uh, so, yeah, the, the um, let's see, they received an honorable mention award from the Environmental Protection Agency in a nationwide college design competition. And uh, uh, they're saying that the this process, uh, this seems really kind of hard to believe, but they said that it would only cost like $5 per roof. Oh, wow. Is it so, like a coating then? Or is yeah, it really... it must be a coating that you, you put on that's made of really cheap materials. So that seems like really low, $5 per roof. <laughs> But uh, even if it was 10 times that much, $500 per roof, that would still be well worth it. Yeah, definitely. And you would think that the government on something like this would step in and, and give subsidies, even if it was something more expensive. Uh, you would think and hope. <laughs> oh, def yeah, because, I mean, they give subsidies to electric cars, and, and this would definitely be in the subsidy category if this pans out. Yeah, so that's that's great if two just college students at UC Riverside were able to come up with something like this that would make it have a huge impact on improving our situation with pollution. Yeah, and I think the Inland Fire has quite a situation with pollution because air just kind of sits there, right? Um, in a lot of areas, in the um, Temecula area, we do have um, there's a canyon that that actually has a pretty clean shot from here to the ocean so that we get air that comes in every day a little before sundown oh okay it comes through which accounts for the huge uh, diurnal shift the temperature differential from day to night uh -huh. which it often cool the the nighttime low is often 40 degrees below the daytime high which is pretty extreme um, so in other words, it can be 100 degrees in the day here, and then at night it's um, it, it, it'll get down to 60, which is that's quite a huge difference. So um, that air is coming in here to the, the Temecula area, but that's just the sort of Temecula Valley. Yeah, I think you're right. Most of the Inland Empire it just has air that sits there, and yeah, not not a good thing pollution-wise. Oh, definitely. Um, well, we have an ongoing story that we have an update to, and this is our last update because the situation has been resolved, resolved after two years. Um, there's bad water in Wildemar. The, the water district there was privately run, and all the stuff was dilapidated, and people were having just icky water come out and having to buy water themselves and bring it into their house. And apparently there's been a resolution that's been achieved at the state government level. Yeah, I, mean, I think when you and I first started talking about this story, we were saying that it, it seemed that a higher authority was going to have to get involved, that the local governments weren't able to solve this, and that it, it, the state government was going to have to get involved, which is actually what finally happened. But yeah, you said it was icky water. Yes, it was icky water, but it, it was more than just icky. It was quite dangerous. The water yeah. was contaminated with nitrates, which are really bad for your health. And uh, so it's been a while that people have not definitely not been using that water for drinking. A lot of people are still using it in their homes for other purposes, but some people would not even use it for any purpose and we're just having all their water brought in. We're having to go 
grab water every couple of days. They did recently uh, put a tank in the area that's a, a huge uh, tank that's brought in on a truck that I guess is brought in once a week or whatever to um, people can pull water from that. But that's not a good solution. You want water right in your house. And uh, so the the finally the state got involved. Well, they've been involved for a while, but they finally done passed a bill that uh, the governor Jerry Brown has signed and I think the main thing was that the two adjacent water districts that are public water and not a private entity uh, didn't want to get involved with supplying water here unless they they would get immunity from any type of prosecution uh, from the previous water company because sometimes when you take over something then you're liable for what they did before uh-huh. and, so anyway, so they got the immunity, and they also, I think, got a grant, and so the state made it quite palatable for them to get involved, and so they're doing that. They said it'll be two months that the water, the pipeline will be finished, and people will have water, but that's just a temporary pipeline. Then they're going to build a more permanent one that's, I guess, a heavy, higher volume, more heavy-duty set up that'll last for decades. But it, it was interesting because they, they got a lot of... In, involvement from state legislators and they it's it's funny one of the um, legislators was saying wow this is great it's government at its best bipartisan focused and timely and i thought yeah that is great i it just well i wish we'd see a little bit more of that from our federal government Uh, bipartisan are you kidding me when's the last time that happened yeah yeah and usually if it's bipartisan it's it feels like the the democrats to give up quite a bit to achieve that yeah, and so so this is, I mean, showing that bipartisan government can work, and uh, the, um, you know, we said $6 million state grant to finance a new system, which is not a lot of money when you consider the full state budget, but it's going to, that's great that it's going to happen, and people are going to have water, and, and it, they were saying that the old private company that was supplying the the bad water is just kind of this vestige of the early 20th century when private companies were what was kind of the main way of supplying water. And, you know, it kind of puts the lie to the whole libertarian notion that private always does it better. Yeah, private uh, private entities don't do it better, especially when it comes to utilities. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make a case for a situation here and there where a private entity does do some things better, but... Um, you know, I think these types of things, these big types of things, you 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 want a public utility where everybody kind of has a stake in it. Yeah, definitely, because it affects your health. And then with private companies, you have the bottom line to worry about, and they take they take shortcuts. Yeah, exactly. And this time, you know, it's like it's not about making a profit. I mean, it's about supplying a uh, service that we all agree is necessary. It's kind of necessary to life. Yeah, definitely, and it's one of the reasons why I I hope more cities come up with a municipal internet system because that's a resource of life at this point in time where it's just like you can't look for a job without it, you can't do anything without it, and it's getting to the point where it's almost like water and you know just private companies wanting net neutrality. That's a totally other topic, but it's still it shows that there is a realm that government can do and do well and effectively. Yeah, and people got to look at it. When you say government, you know, I mean, ultimately, what you do mean, or ideally, what you do mean, is we the people. That it, it's not like some big scary 
big brother thing. It's just like we elect representatives to do what we think is best for everybody. And when government works right, that's what it's doing. And um, that it, it, it's us doing things organized and collectively. Yeah, definitely. And with that, Robert Larson, he joins us from the other side of the Cleveland National Forest. Thanks for joining us this morning on the Heather McCoy Show. All right. It's been great to be with you today. Okay, thanks. And you are listening to the Heather McCoy Show. <laughs> <laughs>